0: This is a 3CR podcast.
1: And this is Published or Not. There are lots of different crimes and nearly just as many different ways to tell about the crime. Podcasts, stories, magazine articles or books. And today's novel has an author who has researched true crime inspired fiction at a university level. So it's welcome, Ruth McIver, or is it Dr McIver?
2: I actually rarely get to use that title. (laughs) So you can call me Dr MacIver, but just please don't ask me to do anything in a medical emergency.
1: (laughs) Ruth, what validates something as true crime?
2: I think that's an interesting question because a lot of crime fiction books um, are actually based on true crime events, often sort of triggered or inspired by, a crime that the authors heard about or read about in the paper or whatnot. I think when something becomes a true crime inspired fiction novel, for example, is when the authors made a conscious decision to frame events in a book in a fictional way around a true crime and then they have researched that or it's the intention, um, as well as also how it's marketed and sold.
1: Well, in the prologue, we read about a rather bizarre crime.
2: What is it? Yes, so basically... It's a kind of fragmented representation of a a true crime that occurred and that I actually based the book on, which was uh, the crimes of uh, the Acid King, um, aka Ricky Casso. In my book, it's it's a a different crime and it's framed in a different way. Um, But it's basically a a satanic thrill kill murder, allegedly, um, in real life. Uh, it was also an alleged thrill kill to uh, satanic murder but it definitely had a lot more occult elements but largely speaking it was all the teens involved imbibed a lot of psychedelics which accounts for all the fragmented um, recollections
1: well and uh, andre villiers is he's the one who's first killed and it's yes. called the cha- the giant but you know he you yes. always carried that a book of the satanic bible around with him and he's yes. known to alan because he tried to choke her once and then yes. there's ricky hell who she remembers rather tenderly you know that yes. uh, and but he's got a different persona in this group yes yes mm. yes There's Carol, well, quote, uh, she was still in her Dairy Queen uniform, smelling like Windex and sugar. Hmm. And Cormac O'Malley, now, he was an outsider, and he appreciates being part of the group. And Danny Quinlan Walsh, now, he had anger issues. He was given a punching bag, karate lessons and therapy to alleviate his anger. Well, this was a time of... Heavy metal music, goths, drugs, alternative dressing, and alternative religious worships. Yeah. What do you think was the main driver?
2: I would say drugs um, are a huge factor in this. I think there's a sense of confusion and anger um, and displacement, as well as apathy and boredom, and and also that kind of sense of. A collective group consciousness, um, you know, where peers kind of uh, enable each other and and egg each other on, and I think that's the case with the tr- the, the the real crime also, um, where there was a lot of confusion and there was a lot of uh, ingestion of substances, and and that combined with boredom and angst, um, but also psychological problems and trauma too. Mm-hmm.
1: Teenage rebellion. Most of the kids were from white middle class backgrounds, except for Ricky Hell. We know Erin knew this crowd, but she wasn't there that night. Jump ahead all these years. So, what's she doing now?
2: So, she's a crime writer um, for a magazine called. Inside Island. So when I say crime writer, really has an ambition to write really meaty stories. So she has a lot of ambition. Her her potential has been really diminished by things that have happened in her life. So even though she doesn't want to pursue this story, part of it is actually besides from a desire to kind of really go back into the past and and in a way understand where things went wrong, is partly also because she actually has a really strong desire to be to make something of herself to be somebody.
1: Well, she's moved back to her childhood home as a dad's in a palliative care hospital. She's wearing a mother's clothes and she acknowledges that she was a difficult teenager. But her family was rather dysfunctional. Let's hear from page 44, please, Ruth McIver.
2: My mum was husky, into aerobics, binge eating wine and ambience. My father had never been home for mum's frozen and nuked dinners and lived like a medieval ghoul in the dark recesses of the den, occasionally emerging drunken in his Homer Simpson tidy whities Sloan family unhappiness was manifest. It was soaked into the carpet and the foundations of our house.
1: yes. And, of course, there's been a few deaths along the way. The others in the group, Carol... Now she's written a book making out she was a damsel in distress at when this happened. But really Erin remembers her as the bong queen who could smoke and drink everybody under the table. <laughs> Cormac had a psychological breakdown and was hospitalized at the court case. Now he's, I like this one, a graphic designer in Melbourne. <laughs> It's our <laughs> connection there. And Danny, well, he's successful in his in, in a family business, married and with kids now. So all those years ago, what type of relationship were Danny and Erin? Ooh, I think we better get back on page 48.
2: I like Danny best undressed, the silk of his skin, sex and the cinnamon of his breath, his semi-permanent hard-on, the fact that he paid attention to me. No, not in a healthy way, no, but with the vigilance of a lion on the Serengeti guarding a gazelle's carcass. Why did Danny, a golden god who had come down from Mount Apollo, choose to fraternise with me? Now I knew it was because of his predilections rather than any notion of romantic love. Because what started out as games like how much more could it suck turned into a love of ropes and an understanding of knots that transcended the maritime. And we quickly escalated from traditional teenage fumbling into what I now understand to be hard limits, sadomasochism. The introduction of the unimaginatively named Light My Fire game featuring lighters on the skin and the Take My Breath Away game autoerotic association were prime examples of where he was headed, where we were headed.
1: Oh, yes. So all these years later, she comes to Danny and uh, says, well, you know, uh, tell me what happened. You've never never spoken about it. And he said, well, if you come to the uh, a motel with me <laughs> and... Uh, No, she's not interested in that. So what happens is, as you say, I hadn't just stirred the hornet's nest. I'd shaken it violently. So Danny's after her again. It's suggested by a policewoman that Erin puts a domestic violence order against Danny now, but Erin knows about police. It was Cormick's stepdad, a policeman, who shot Ricky, Her own father, a policeman, and his partner, Mona, signed off on the killings, but she knew her father wasn't there. And she knew about Mona. They had more than a professional relationship, didn't they? Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And her father um, and then Erin finds a whole lot of money hidden in the house. Yes. Then there's Ox. Now, Ox calls Erin Pumpkin. Who is he and why is he concerned about Erin's safety?
2: Well, he's a a family friend as well as her father's friend and somebody who, you know, came to her in a time of great distress and uh, helped her out of that situation. And he's kind of been a kind of almost like a remote guardian angel to her. He's helped her out of a lot of messy situations, which she's been in. And so it's become a kind of like father figure. He's the only person that she trusts. As the story is very noir, that might not oh, be the case. And what,
1: <laughs> what kind of case is he working on now?
2: He's a, a person who works in the arena of, you know, cybercrime. And he he basically kind of polices chat rooms and, mm. and he works with people that abuse children.
1: Before and after the Halloween murders, there were events that were going on, other crimes, but never an arrest. What were they?
2: The missing children in Southport, that that kind of features in, in the background. Three children have gone missing in Southport throughout the, the 90s and the early noughties. Mm. These murders are kind of potentially linked and tied to different players in, in and, and throughout the book. Mm. Um, but also just kind of I think that they kind of signified too that that southport's not all all that it seems beneath the kind of veneer of you know wealth and security that you know even the the wealthy kids the protected kids uh, are perhaps uh, not protected after all and that that danger kind of lurks underneath the surface
1: yeah so it's the younger sisters of her friends that have a different perspective of what's going on How is Comic's sister helping her?
2: So, yes, Ashley O'Malley is trying to point out that Steve Shearer, um, the cop that shot Ricky Hell, is not who he seems to be. But because she's sort of wacky and, um, you know, a bit unstable, it appears that she's sort of like an internet troll. So she, she actually comes into the story heavily trying to give her her um, brother's manuscript to Erin and to get her to explore Steve Shearer and the, and, and the angles that she's, she's pushing for.
1: Erin's used the internet to find out lots of other information and she's not confident that it's all correct. She finds out one source who is regularly posting died many years ago Another leads her back into the woods. Let's get a description of those woods from page
2: two. West Cypress Road's woods have a soundtrack. In the daytime, it's all Disney. Hummingbirds and red-headed woodpeckers, the light footfall of deer. At night, the deep-bellied hoot of barn owls and nightjars and more sinister rustling, deeper in the dark. There was an occasional homeless guy wandering through, kids parking, getting high, fooling around. Wildcats, you think wolves you imagine another layer of the soundtrack the noises he made in the dark gurgle snorts moans feet shuffling in the dirt the crunching of sticks under boots and canvas sneakers
1: oh yes there's somebody there mm-hmm. uh, so when Erin visits these people again it's with some trepidation sharp inquisitive eyes locate something at Mona's place that connects Carol and her professional life and Steve Shearer this is call Mick's dad, and it's all in Florida. She quotes her father saying, coincidence is for the birds.
2: I actually love snooping around in people's kitchens. I think you can find out a lot um, from a kitchen, and so she does buy a fridge magnet. (laughs) Um, And, yeah, so always snoop in people's kitchens, people, uh, if you're wanting to find out some things as well as bathrooms. So, yeah, so she ends up sort of uh, hopping on a plane to explore that connection further. Um, Coral Springs is where Carol Jenkins works and now you know Mona's got this magnet on her fridge and and so and Steve Shearer is in Florida so she has to follow the story.
1: Climax comes in gator (laughs) country the back blocks the swamps and of course this area has no mobile access let's just get a little hint of how she's feeling now.
2: Out here, near the gloom of the glades, away from the highway and the rest of the country, the only sound was the rain on the roof of the car and my own heart beating furiously. I recognised the erratic flutter, a bird tangled in a Venetian blind, knocking itself out on the glass.
1: Mm, And it's not until the very end when we find out who shot the devil. You mentioned before, you know, this book's about juvenile delinquents, but... There's also so much corruption going inside the white culture.
2: Yeah I feel like the the whole kind of like youth panic or moral panic is really just a kind of veil the the heart of corruption and the evil that takes place in the book is perpetrated amongst the adolescents is is largely an adult an adult affliction but I think it's also that whole gothic thing you know the sins of the father is 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 visited upon the the offspring. The book
1: of course is set in America do you think different countries have different crimes
2: that's interesting i think this is a crime very much of its time and i think that it could have taken place in australia but the way that it was told and represented could only have been done in america in that time
1: one of your first books was a a verse novel uh the sunset club yeah were you aware of dorothy porter
0: Oh yes,
2: yeah. Dorothy Porter was, you know, one of the the reasons why I was even interested in in crime, really. Which is an interesting way <laughs> to get into crime. I love her. Yeah.
1: Erin is a difficult character. She's very abusive to herself. Was it difficult to write such a challenging character?
2: Well, it's it's funny that you say that because some people have said that about her, and other people. Don't find her difficult or um, unlikable or any of any of the above. And 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 you know, there's been very mixed feedback. No, it wasn't. It was actually really easy because it was enjoyable to go into her mindset. I think the challenge was, and this might be more um, telling <laughs> about me was to temper her her behavior a little bit and make it more logical because she's just pure impulse basically. And and with editorial feedback of, you know, why why is she kind of putting herself in all this danger? I was trying to kind of make that a little bit more rational and logical and 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 whatnot. To me, her actions stem from someone who doesn't really understand how to protect herself and i think that that is a side effect of someone who has really complex trauma who's been through a lot of suffering and pain at the hands of someone else and i found that really easy to to actually write that um, but that was from you know kind of quite an old place for me so yeah i've actually found it quite therapeutic really <laughs>
1: oh good Erin's teenage friends were charged with horrific murder. 16 years later, and as a crime writer, she gets to investigate it herself in I Shot the Devil by Ruth MacIver. Thanks very much, Ruth.
2: Thank you very much
1: for having me. And now here's David with his author.
0: Part memoir, part reflection. Anne Rennie's new collection, Blessed, is appropriately subtitled Meditations, on a life of small wonders. So Anne, welcome back to 3CR. Thank you very much, David. Small wonders. You're focusing on the little things in life.
3: Yes, I am. Uh, I think it's very important to uh, be aware, to lean in, to look around you, to be mindful that that sort of aggregation of small delights can often change your day or change your week or month. But sometimes we overlook them because we're so uh, consumed with with busyness, with, with being accountable or doing our daily work or being all things to all people, that we can become quite self-absorbed and we forget to notice.
0: Well, you can put it in the context of what's happening in the world today with the pandemic and these global concerns. How does mm-hmm. global play into that then?
3: Well, I think that sometimes we can be so overwhelmed by by the pandemic, by the, the the political commentary, by the global impact of everything, that we can really need touching small things to just keep us um, in touch with ourselves and to touch our own reality. Because sometimes we have little control over the global stage, really. It happens to us. What we can control are, are our dailyness you know, the things that, that matter to us each day, the, the little joys, the little things, the, the, the kind words, the, the, the clouds, the sun, the sparrows, all that sort of stuff. And, and they can give us sort of ballast and, and buoyancy um, in, in a world that can be very uncertain. As we know, David, those tectonic plates in Melbourne, okay. that gave us a scare. So we need some things we can count on.
0: Blessed or blessed, how
3: would you like it pronounced? Oh, that's so interesting because so many people, I'm inclined to call it blessed, but so many refer to it as blessed. Um, so, look, it doesn't matter. Really, for me, whatever, whatever floats your boat, uh, I think the idea is, is, is still there regardless of the pronunciation.
0: Now, an interesting thing, you're exposing yourself here in many ways. You're pointing out mm-hmm. events that have happened in your life. That can be quite confronting.
3: It can be, but let me say that exposure is fairly careful. It's it's not a sort of a kiss and tell, apart from the first kiss, which was very sweet, um, and and things like that. I'm not a prurient style of person, so it, it, it does expose my growing up and my family and, and, and a few things that happen in family. But I'm very mindful that, you know, my I have brothers and sisters I love dearly, so I would not ever do anything to hurt them. Uh, so so things that are said are, are, are more general but true. Uh, so it's, it's honest, but it's not brutal.
0: But it also then touches on your faith, but I think there's a contradiction that starts to emerge, but this might be mm-hmm. my Protestant leanings.
3: <laughs> yes, but, David. But
0: <laughs> your faith first and foremost here, important mm. to you,
3: Oh, absolutely. I mean, and I suppose these are things that make you who you are. Um, you know, I've, I've been baptised Catholic, grown up in a Catholic household, went to a Catholic school. Most of my friends are of the ilk. Um, I do have others. But um, I suppose that it, it's and the, the sisters at uh, the school I, I went to, their um, influence was very profound. So I suppose the whole Catholic tribe thing has coloured me somewhat um, and, and that faith and that, that worldview, if you like.
0: But at the same time, you're pointing out some of the contradictions there because you actually married a Protestant, for heaven's sake. And there's I... another chapter in there where you talk about the upbringing, about how dutiful you were meant to be as a woman mm. to her husband, mm. etc. Mm. How do you explain those contradictions?
3: Oh, look, because, you know, we're all um, interesting human beings. And so, yes, it was a little bit difficult explaining to my father, you know, that I've met this man and he's a Protestant and marrying out and all that sort of stuff. But the reality is we're human beings and human beings have to get on with each other. And I think that's very much Pope Francis' approach. Um, and, and I'm sort of right behind him in that understanding that, that, that most of all we need to recognise each other. And it's not about the tribe, um, even if you are faithful to that tribe.
0: Your writing style, then, is another thing that uh, is engaging and entertaining. Just one of the shortest passages here, I'll just read a part of it. Dawn. And the cast of the world's oldest moving picture show assembles for another day's performance. Mad hatters and ghostly galleons and Old Testament pillars and Play-Doh rabbits and Dragons jostle behind the moth curtain of night. The cherub in charge of clouds barks orders and loudly consults with the cherub in charge of climate. Together, they decide the order of performance because they know that if they don't start promptly, the azure blue sky hovering hopefully in the wings will simply stride in and take over. It's one of the more literary passages, <laughs> if one may say so. Yeah. had a bit of yeah. fun here.
3: Oh, look, David, that's the joy of writing and, and the joy of just getting an idea sometimes and really sometimes that you just run with um, and, you know, you just it's a bit of a silliness, whimsy sometimes, uh, but you just think, oh, I like this and how can I make it work and, and you know, you link it to your own theatrical career or, or, or things that, that happen or and and it just goes so. And I read a lot, David, or I, I, I read as much as I can within the constraints of working full time and etc. Um, so so, and I care that my words are, are well put together.
0: So, is it the writing process that is the key to the reflection, or the thought and idea that you're trying to negotiate with?
3: Ah, look, that, it's probably a combination of the two. I think the idea starts first. You know, look, you know, where did that start? Probably looking at the clouds and seeing their shapes and wondering what the sort of day was like and just looking outside, so some gazing, just some looking about me and thinking, oh, that's an idea, and then transcribing that into my own words. So the idea, I think, comes first. Um, and sometimes ideas uh, come thickly and, and sometimes, you know, it's really hard to grab one. So I think the idea comes first. And once it's there and I've wrestled it onto the page, then I can really start working with it.
0: But does your thought or reflection change in the process of writing?
3: Oh, yes. I'm a, I'm a big editor and, and a big changer and a big um, nothing is a first draft. You know, I could be third or fourth or fifth draft. So, yeah, I I, I move things around and I like things and I don't like them. I can be a bit critical.
0: But I'm thinking more as you write, not the editing afterwards, but the Mm. transformation that occurs as you write.
3: Right. Well, I write sort of on paper first of all. It, 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 I'm not a techie, so I like jotting down. I have a little exercise book that I carry around with me. Uh, so if I hear something or see something or have a splendid thought, I can jot it down, and then I probably do a little mind map, really, and and put it up a few other words together and a few other ideas, and then see where that will take me. Now, sometimes it takes me to wonderful places which which end up with something. Sometimes it's very lacklustre and I've just got to give it away. Uh, and it's, you know, I, I think the thing is people talk about a muse. Well, sometimes it's there and other times it's not. It, it's, it's not always there. It's not always easy
0: to access. And who do you hope your readership will be?
3: Oh, look, readership will be people of goodwill, basically, people who like... Um, uh, an honest, um, hopeful, optimistic look at the world—Melburnians, Australians, uh, anyone really—people who have a, a an idea of the transcendent, but without that being paralysing, um, because I know we're in a secular, pluralist culture. Um, so I was very mindful, and and the the uh, editor was very good, and and one of my first readers uh, told me that you know when you write, depending on how you want to sell or promote, uh. Think about who you disqualify. And I'd never really thought of that, you know, And but now I do. I'm very mindful, or more recently, that when I write, um, I'm, I'm thinking of whom I'm writing for and trying to make it as, as inclusive as possible, not as alienating. So without just sitting on a fence, um, I'm writing for people who are hopeful, who are good and decent and like to... Um, enjoy a good read as well like words like ideas like memory like a bit of fun um, and can appreciate that this is my take Um, and it's it's not unique certainly well it is unique because it's mine but it's also universal
0: well if you're one of those listeners out there that fits Anne's description you need to pick up a copy of blessed or blessed Meditations on a Life of Small Wonders, the author Anne Rennie, and it's a Laneway Press release. So, Anne, thank you very much for talking with me today. Thank you very much, David. You've just been listening to Published or Not on 3CR.
3: You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.